0: So I'm looking at uh, a gorilla. It's In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. The, and it's the background music. Brilliant song, this.
1: Mm-hmm. Is
0: gorilla is breathing. It's the Roland CR-78 drum machine, in case you wanted to know.
2: Not in this version.
0: <laughs> oh, it is right now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> can you hear that?
2: I can. I'm enjoying it.
0: So uh, said gorilla is now imitating Phil Collins's unmistakable drum style. <laughs> oh, there's a bit of a problem here. The gorilla's actually playing a right handed kit. Phil Collins <laughs> is a left handed drummer.
2: Oh, well, I guess that's that's no, out sorry. of the
0: bag. Phil Collins isn't actually a gorilla. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> Been wrong all this time. Can't have that. Phil Collins is a f- is famously left handed on the drums, and this is a right handed drum kit. So, no, sorry, fail. Forty. I feel like that should be significant somehow. Forty two. That'd be significant. Yeah, that's clearly far more significant, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that is actually, um, of course, it's it's a well known fact amongst Station Thirteen listeners that I only read one book. Yeah, but that is one. <laughs> that is one book which I. Uh, Really must get around to reading, and that is The (laughs) Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. No, I have not read it.
2: I thought you were going to say it was the one other book you'd read. I'm disappointed. (laughs) No.
0: (laughs) No. Yes, regular listeners will be aware that I kind of gave up on reading after discovering The Silmarillion by Tolkien and then decided that that was the only book that I'd ever need to read, and hence that's all I read. Although, I will say that actually, um, I, uh, let's see, two weeks ago, I actually bought a book. Wow, I bought a book, but you're not going to read it. It's just decoration. No, actually, it's uh, yeah, it's quite appropriate for me actually because it is. It's a graphic designer reference manual for some logo types from around Mm. the world. Mm -hmm. I have a uh, particular interest in logo design, and there's some great resources that you can get online, obviously. But there's nothing like, you know, just like a nice quality book filled to the brim with. A nicely curated selection of, you know, top logo designs from around the world. And um, that's what this one was. And so, uh, yes, that is a book that I have been reading recently. Well, not really reading, I suppose, but viewing. Well done. I was
2: going to say, I don't think that counts as
0: reading a book, really. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's good. Good book. Four books, actually. Four books. Mm. Uh, I only know the names of two of them. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the first one. Right. And isn't isn't the last one called Thanks for All the Fish? So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Right. I can't remember the order.
2: There's the restaurant at the end of the universe, which I think it was originally a trilogy, and then he wrote a fourth one. Mm. So I think So Long and Thanks for All the Fish might be the third one, the original end, Mm -hmm. and the restaurant at the end of the universe might be the other end. (laughs) <laughs> well, there's multiple endings yeah i, th- I think that's uh, there's something there link to the wikipedia in the show notes i'm sure it's a bit like black sabbath i went to see black sabbath live 18 years ago right i think maybe <laughs> maybe a bit longer than that right in a tour that they called the last supper right because they were saying this is their last ever tour the last time they're going to be playing together right and i thought oh well i've got to. Got to go out and see this. My last chance, and and they've done so many gigs and tours since then, and they always big it up as the last one. I later discovered that I don't think this was the first last tour either. Yeah. So I think it's a con, Black Sabbath, con artist.
0: They're not the uh, they're not the only ones. that I think Phil Collins had a series of concerts called "Finally the First Farewell Tour." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually um, one of. Uh, he's he's done a few yeah he's done a few tours called things like first final farewell tour
2: mm. oh, he's almost admitting to it then and there by putting the
0: word first in the title right Phil Collins is great yes you know he's yes. just he's just like uh he comes across as just this regular bloke who who's just a drummer and mm. but there's a few distinctive characteristics about his singing which uh next time you listen really li- listen out for this Mm. he has an incredible sense of pitch Mm. and you can hear that in the fact that when he sings he uses no vibrato Mm. so he's he's always sort of direct note right there Mm. but solid on tune like it's really really excellent pitch and so a lot of singers vibrato is is an expressive element of singing obviously but it's also a kind of a way to kind of uh, approximate pitch (laughs) and uh, not have to worry so much about pitch because you've got the the general pitch, but then you're kind of wavering up and down for expressive mm. objective. But uh, Phil Collins doesn't do that. He's just like, you know, no no messing around, just straight to the note. And he's he's always immaculately on tune, especially if you watch his uh, videos of him performing live. Mm. Uh, fantastic performer. Anyway, <laughs> did you know, um, I know we uh, we've just started episode 40 with like a barrage of of nicely segued topics here, but... um, Perfect, yeah. Just before we leave uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, followed by somehow or other Black Sabbath and then somehow or other Phil Collins. Phil Collins was actually known for that particular drum sound. He was one of the, I think, one of the very first in the 80s to start off, kick off this trend of this gated reverb on the drums, which gave this sort of, basically, you take a a digital reverb unit, you put it on the drums, but then you use a, a noise gate to cut off the end of the reverb mm. so basically you're taking a snappy transient drum sound mm. and kind of stretching it out into this long long noisy kind of chunk of, of noise for the, for the drum sound then cutting it off uh, artificially mm. and um, it creates that distinctive that kind of big massive fat snare sound and, and, and kick sound. And uh, after he started doing that, that sort of um, Mm. spawned a whole bunch of people trying to replicate getting that similar sound. So it was very, uh, yes, anyway. It is a very iconic sound. Yeah. For that era. Yes. Um, How are you, Danny?
1: Uh, I'm good. Yeah.
0: How are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm all right. This is the last episode
2: before Christmas.
0: It is. This is our uh, Christmas show of sorts.
2: Uh, Yeah, I suppose so it doesn't feel very much like christmas i don't i don't think i mean this is bias you're from australia so you probably have a very different notion of what feeling like christmas uh, is but obviously coming from england there's a, there's a very traditional the pictures you see on the christmas cards are more or less modelled on european christmases right uh, <laughs> so it seems very natural and and f- for the time i was in japan there was you know there's a lot of christmas music and stuff playing but it's uh, different and i don't know it never quite felt like christmas there either and also they had these upside down christmas trees in kyoto <laughs> okay <laughs> remember those and Shujo dori they they hang christmas trees upside down from the the uh ceiling the covered walkway wow no um, i never saw that yeah that's classic uh, nice. japanese christmas and of course uh who could forget the the traditional
0: christmas meal of, of kentucky fried chicken Is there something sacrilegious about hanging a Christmas tree upside down? Right, like it feels like there should be, right? I don't think there is,
2: but you're not the first person to say that. Like a lot of people that that I knew when
0: I was there used to call them Satan trees. Right. Well, I think that it's important to understand that in, in Japan, the role of Christmas and New Year is flipped compared to what it is in the West. Right. Where generally... Christmas is a time to be with your family and it is more of more has more of a, a spiritual religious meaning for many right uh, whereas new year is a time to sort of have some fun with your friends yeah and uh in Japan it's kind of flipped the other way around where new year is the time that it's it's much more solemn and you're at home and you're with your family or you go back to your parents house and there's you know specific things that you eat on the on January first, and I think we've talked a lot about that before. We did, Christmas yeah. To... I think last yeah. probably this time last year
2: it was in fact episode eighteen, the full duplex. Ah. I think we uh, we covered differences between Japanese and uh, and our own respective Christmases, but right. here as well in California, it's like it's a bit cooler now, but it's not that cold, and it's very sunny and. Mm. I don't know, not feeling the Christmassy
0: vibes. How about you in Sweden? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, these kinds of events, uh, uh, yeah, obviously Scandinavia is pretty much the place to be for, you know, the a, a uh, the, the festive seasons. Mm. So, yeah, Christmas um, in Europe, like a lot of European countries in, in Sweden, the, they, they celebrate most of Christmas on the 24th. Mm-hmm. That is that kids open their presents. Oh, really? Presents on the twenty fourth. Oh, really? On as Christmas to, Eve. Yeah. Right. And uh, the twenty twenty fifth is kind of like the. Um, I asked my son, who's a bit more of an expert on these things than myself, and he said, "I said, what what do the Swedish kids do on the twenty fifth then?" Mm. And he said. I don't know, play with their toys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I yeah. guess that's the answer to that. Um I suppose. But, oh, uh, Does it
2: take a similar place to Boxing Day?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
2: It's the sort of quiet day after all the festivities where you're right. tidying things up. So
0: and, there's, yeah. there's obviously trees all over the place and um, there are uh, specific songs that mm. Swedish... Uh, people will sing at Christmas and they form a circle and um, kind of dance around a tree singing specific traditional songs, which is nice. Mm. There are, so I guess, there are foods. It's a bit difficult to say because like the Japanese New Year, you know, if you're a, essentially a foreigner mm. in the country mm. and you're talking about a a festive event that is chiefly family oriented, mm. You know, we don't really get that much of a sort of inside look into what all of the families are doing because we're not invited, right? (laughs) Because it's a family thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I don't really have that much first-hand knowledge about what goes on. Perhaps some of our Swedish listeners can uh, fill us in on the station thirteen Reddit. Yeah. Uh, The one thing that Scandinavia is obviously very nice for, with in this particular uh, season, of course, is the is the ambience because we have really short days right now. Mm. the sun comes the sunrise is at eight thirty mm. so it gets light by about nine uh and sunset is at two fifty right now mm. uh, and I believe the shortest day of the year is the twenty first of December i think sounds about right and yeah so on that day it, the sun will be at you know roughly two forty or so mm. um and uh that means by three p m it's already pitch black right but it's sort of this, um, uh, and I've said it many times before. I know, but it's like a, it's a sort of dark blue, and punctuated by this glowing orange lights in all of the windows. Because mm. one thing that um, uh, Swedish people do is they'll put uh, stars or candles in the window, mm. uh, and they'll they'll generally leave them on all the time. And so mm-hmm. you know, uh, through the 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 grey hours of daylight, through to you know the 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 darkness at 3 p.m. is just sort of punctuated by these glowing orange lights all over the place. Mm. It's quite, uh, yeah, it's, it's very um, sort of cosy and warmly picturesque somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's a nice backdrop for Christmas.
2: England is obviously not as far north as Sweden, but still by the, the depths of winter, I remember it was already dark by the end of school. So I think it was dark by about 3 p.m., mm. And my school finished at at 4 p.m. And we would sort of walk through town. I, I walked home. Um, and I just have lots of memories of walking through the town kind of after it's got dark and just hanging out in shops with all the lights on. And somehow there's something about that experience that well, I don't... I, none of that applies to my life anymore because it's not dark. Mm. Uh, I don't go to school and I don't walk through towns because it's
0: America. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. so all in all, very nostalgic. Yeah, when I was um, growing up, Christmas, um, uh, you know, uh, being that I've lived in the Northern Hemisphere for the past 16, 17 years, mm. um, a lot of people ask me, you know, what was it like growing up in a place like Adelaide where it's, you know, uh, right in the middle of summer in, at Christmas? Mm. And somehow... I think my wife it was my wife who found it bizarre that Father Christmas, as we call him, mm. uh, would be wearing the same clothes as he, <laughs> as the kind of you know st- cliched stereotypical image right. of Father Christmas. Those right. winter clothes. Right. Uh, the imagery of him in Australia in the middle of summer at yeah. Christmas time is the yeah. same. Yeah. And it never sort of occurred to me that. He must be really, really hot, <laughs> yeah. wearing wearing that that big kind of thick jacket and uh, and uh, those big heavy boots and the long red pants yeah, in the yeah. middle of summer.
2: He's just flown in from Finland, uh, Yeah, so that's right. That's what
0: it is. Yeah. yeah. So we, um, uh, I think we may have talked about uh, the way that we used to celebrate Christmas in Adelaide before, but mm-hmm. some of the the nice memories that I used to have as a child is which, which you could definitely not do in. Uh, scandinavia so easily mm. is uh, and actually probably nowadays for many reasons you couldn't do it in in australia either but we um my father and myself um would join the church choir mm-hmm. and we'd all pile onto the back of like a like a pickup truck mm. like a large uh what do you, like a what do you call them like a large pickup truck but much larger what would you, what would you call that? I don't know. Okay. if There's a name for that specifically. Tip truck. Tip truck. I think is what we used to call it. Because okay. the, the whole the whole back lifts up with hydraulics. I think it's called a tip mm. truck.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: Anyway, we used to pile into the back of one of those and drive around the city singing Christmas carols. Mm. Uh, so you'd, you'd have stops along the way at like various um, elderly care centres and and uh, places like that. But basically, mm-hmm. you know, we'd just be singing. Christmas carols and that would really kind of work when it's you know 6 p.m and it's already like 32 degrees Celsius and you're in the back of a truck with the wind the wind you know uh, blowing across you and the, yeah it's quite nice in the middle of summer mm. I don't think you could do that for legal reasons now because I'm not sure it's actually legal to have people in the back of a truck that are not, uh, not secured. secured by any safety yeah. equipment you know those were the days yeah.
2: Well, but you have uh, carol singers presumably in Sweden not in trucks but are there people <laughs> you know
0: going around singing carols i think so i mean i've uh, it tends, at least what i remember last year it's it's generally quite quiet mm. maybe just because we uh, because the children want to you know get into their presence and stuff so we're mainly just at home mm. possibly if if we went out to like a shopping centre or something i guess there might be something like that but uh, Sorry, this hasn't been very informative (laughs) (laughs) about Christmas in in Sweden. I don't really know. So all the Swedish (laughs) listeners, please fill us in. Yeah,
2: I was just thinking about the the different days because you said quite common in Europe, but I haven't heard of of Christmas Eve being a day all that often. I've heard of, obviously, we celebrate on the 25th and we do all the opening of presents then. And I know a lot of your Southern European countries, uh, like Spain does this, I think France does it as well. Probably Italy too. Mm. Uh, to celebrate or at least do the opening of presents and all that on the sixth of January. Oh, really? Which is wow. three Kings Day. That's the day that the three kings or the three wise men came to visit Jesus and gave him the the gold and frankincense and, and myrrh and so forth. Mm. And so, because they were giving presents, that's that's kind of where that idea comes from. That oh, the, I see. the present giving portion happens on that day, mm. and the the day of Christmas itself is more of a religious day where you're spending time with family and having the big meal and all that, uh, but also going to church and just thinking about the sort of Christian story.
0: Mm, I see. Yeah, yeah. I think um, my uh, my best friend in high school, his mother was Austrian. Mm. And uh, yeah, I do remember that in their household, uh, they did all of the, the stuff on the 24th. Mm. So, the presents and the food and the family gathering and all that was on the 24th. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, I'm not sure. Perhaps it might have just been his particular family or... Or Maybe it's a
2: Northern European thing.
0: But, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Perhaps it is Mm. some kind of Northern European thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, interesting.
0: Mm. So, do you have any um, presents planned for... I guess I can't really ask this, can I? I was going to say for your wife, but then if she listens to this, then that's going to, <laughs> that's got she to work out so well.
2: <laughs> I don't think there's any danger of her, her listening. Okay. Uh, but no, I've got <laughs> less than two weeks, and uh, I've got to think of something. Right. <laughs> I do have an idea, but I haven't committed to it yet. Mm. But all the other presents, uh, rarely for us, we actually sorted them all out really early this year because... The majority of the presents that we give every year are to people in England, ah, okay. so to my family. Right. And it's always a, a pain sending it over or trying to find something that, you know, I can buy from Amazon UK or whatever over there to send directly. And, of course, this year we travelled to England in September. So we decided to get all the Christmas presents that we could sorted by September. Hmm. And we just brought them with us and wrapped them there and left them there. So (laughs) it's actually been a fairly... Maybe that's part of the reason that Christmas has crept up on me a bit this year because I haven't had to do any preparations or last-minute panicking trying to find presents for people.
0: So your presents have been sort of sitting in their place this whole time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hopefully you didn't get anything perishable.
2: No, obviously. Obviously (laughs) we didn't. We were able to predict the, the length. Between September and Christmas, ahead of time, like I don't know, milk uh, or
0: uh, a <laughs> fish, or
1: um.
2: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I just bought my mum a bottle of
1: milk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, mum. Here's a fish. Here's a fish. <laughs> yeah, I I um I was briefly considering um for my wife uh, an e-reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I
2: bought my wife a Kindle a couple of years ago for Christmas. Right. So I wanted to ask you, is actually,
0: because this, is, this mm. is kind of critical to whether or not an e-reader is, is a suitable choice for my wife. Mm-hmm. Do you know whether or not there's a wide selection of Japanese manga available for e-readers? So, I can't answer definitively,
2: but I believe that there is. Mm. There's a couple of little caveats. Number one is that I think the selection might be greater on, for example, if you were to go with a Kindle, I think the selection on Amazon Japan might be wider than the Japanese manga that you can get on like Amazon.com or the Swedish Amazon or whatever. Right. Which is fine. You can, you know, if you have an account with Amazon Japan, you can buy things from it mm. uh so th- that's not a problem your kindle is associated with a particular account I so see. you're you're going to want to choose ahead of time like when you're setting it up do i want to associate this with my japanese account or with my you know other account mm. and so for her she may she may choose to associate it with a, a japanese account but i think there is there is quite a range uh my wife does read manga on Uh, her Kindle, sometimes. Hmm. The one thing she said is that she finds the screen to be a little bit small. Oh, okay. And that's slightly surprising because a Kindle is about the size of a manga, right? Manga books tend to be on the small side. Is it Uh, something to do with the resolution, perhaps? Exactly. I think it might be a mix between the physical size and the resolution. Hmm. And for whatever reason, she found that She actually prefers, for manga, she prefers reading it on
0: the iPad to on the Kindle. I think um, it sounds like a resolution thing because the Tankobon sort of smaller manga that you might be thinking of, Mm -hmm. which is about the size of a Kindle, Mm -hmm. uh, that is actually shrunk down from a standard... There's a standard. I forget the name of it, but there's a standard size of paper mm. which manga is drawn on. Oh right, okay. Which is which is like which the is shonen sort of, job sort of size, isn't it? Yeah, like there's the, the size it's of actually the magazines. Right. My wife has some of them because my wife uh, w- uh, did some uh, manga um, work before. But basically, the um, the size of the paper is much larger, but it has a very thick white white margin around it, and the actual frame that you draw in mm-hmm. is is roughly about. 20 centimeters by 30 centimeters or so is is okay. the actual frame that you you draw in, right? And then that is uh, that is roughly the size that you get for those uh, uh, daily um, manga compilation like yeah, shonen jump and those kind of things. And mm. then for the smaller tankobon, the actual book size that uh, that people collect, that's actually shrunk down to whatever that is, 60% okay. size. So right, right. if on a, if you're looking at it on a low resolution e-ink style display. Mm-hmm shrunk down Mm -hmm. then yeah you can imagine that there's going to be a fair bit of resolution that's lost there
2: right now i will say that the kindle that we both have a kindle and the kindle that we have is the same it's the first generation paperwhite which is quite old now so you know the more recent kindles may have a higher resolution and it may Mm. may be better but that is the one sort of thing that she said uh, that that in general i think she prefers to read them on the ipad than the kindle for books the kindle's great but for for manga uh, she gets you know better quality better images and and also just i think crisper on the ipad
0: Mm, Okay, that's good to know Um, Do you know if you can have multiple Amazon accounts on a Kindle? No, I don't believe you can That's what I was saying a couple of minutes ago I think your Kindle is
2: associated with one account So for example, my Kindle used to be associated with my Japanese account And I relatively recently switched it over to my American account
0: So what happens to all of the purchases that you made?
2: I think,
0: I don't think they were removed from the hardware But so you can still access all of the 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 books that you bought on the Japan store,
2: I think so, but I am not one hundred percent certain. And I assumed when I did this that I wouldn't be able to. Mm. However, uh, the Kindle, however, well, for one thing, you can switch accounts, right? You can log out of your current account and log into the other one. I find on the Kindle Paperwhite that I have that's a bit of a pain and slow, like. Mm basically everything on the kindle but i have the kindle app on my ipad as well um and i use that that's much quicker to log out and log back in okay um see. so so i i just sort of maintain both hmm. and i also use uh apple books which is the the ebooks thing for the ipad no, because, obviously, I already have an iPad. And uh, that's also very good. So, yeah.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Knowing that um, on the sort of lower tier Kindles, at least, the resolution for shrunken artwork may not be so great is is uh, good to know, actually. Because uh, that would kind of be a bit of a deal breaker, I guess, for my wife. Because that's the only thing that she really – I mean, she does right. look at some novels. But, it's mo- you know, she mostly uh, – manga and a lot of manga that's older as well it's
2: it's tricky because obviously there's the present and that and i think it is a very personal thing like i think ideally it would be good if she could look at it and decide for herself whether hmm. it was good or not and that, like i say the more recent ones may have a better resolution hmm. if it's really mainly for reading manga then you know and iPad might be a better choice, but an iPad is also a more expensive choice, generally. Mm. So, right. anyway, that's that's about all I can say, I think. I haven't tried the more recent Kindles, so I can't comment on those. I think even the, the Paperwhite, which is the model that we have, I think they've released newer versions since then. I don't know if they've improved the resolution or not.
0: Mm. Interesting. Mm, very good. I've uh, actually been thinking about getting actually one for myself, too, so I can uh, have the Silmarillion much more. Mm. Uh lightweight <laughs> slip slip it into my pocket. <laughs> yeah. Maybe try another book, you know? Maybe. Right. That would be an advantage. Of... Lord of the Rings, maybe. <laughs> 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 kind of boring compared to the Silmarillion, but you know, it's got the appendix, which is pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> not not even sure where to start with that. <laughs> uh, so I uh I had mentioned before about my, um, or maybe I didn't, did I? That I did I mention before that? Uh, yes, I did. I think I did mention before that I had attempted to show my son Star Wars. Yes, you did. Yeah. So that didn't work out, as mm-hmm. as uh, we covered before in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, you know, if if Star Wars uh, is if it's still a little bit too soon for Star Wars, then maybe I'll try something equally legendary, and mm-hmm. that actually turns out to be my favorite movie of all time, even beyond Star Wars, mm-hmm. uh, and that is the original Tron movie ah, yes, from of 1984, I believe, and uh, so I thought, well, you know, maybe um, if Star Wars didn't work, maybe Tron might work, because Tron is a Disney movie, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, you know, it was intended for younger audiences, it is, it's kind of like a, a children's movie of sorts. Mm-hmm. So I, I chose one of my DVDs because I actually have two just in case mm. <laughs> of Tron. Um, I have actually have the, the Japanese DVD and the Western one because uh, I got the Japanese one first when I was in Japan, but then the, there was another Western one with a whole bunch of sort of interesting bonus features on it, which I, right, which I yeah. got as well. So, Yeah, it didn't work out. It didn't last long. Oh, really? Unfortunately, no. Um, I thought it would be okay because like, I couldn't quite – I couldn't think of any particular things in Tron that would be, you know, traumatic or disturbing or or dark or overly mm-hmm. um you know and I think if especially in the opening scenes of Star Wars where you've got Darth Vader strangling people, mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, well if if they could get through that, then I suppose Tron would would be okay. Um But no, it didn't work out. There is a scene at the beginning of Tron Mm -hmm. where the Flynn character, played by Jeff Bridges, is piloting, Mm -hmm. you know, is uh, working with a program called—I can't remember the name of the program. Anyway, at the the very start of the movie, uh, Flynn is controlling a program that is looking for some, uh, I think, some kind of bank account data or something inside the system, Mm. and this program is captured. And then tortured. There's a, there's a scene at the, at the beginning where the the um master control program, the MCP, mm. the evil character, mm-hmm. says to this captured program, who is your user? And then the program says that he's not going to tell him who his user was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he gets flung onto a wall mm. and then gets derezzed. Mm-hmm. And that actual scene of him being derezzed looks particularly painful. Mm. Uh Jeff Bridges does a little bit too good of a job at <laughs> uh kind of depicting what it's like for a program to be derezed. Mm. Uh and yeah, that was that was it. It's like, no, I don't want to watch this. This is and and uh it was just too and yeah, I have to say when I looked at it, I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's pretty it was a real kind of kind of uh um Throaty Jeff Bridges' roar as he's being as he's being tortured and then derestr. All right. So, so he's
2: the I, I my my memory is failing me a little bit here. I haven't seen Tron in a very long time. I thought he was the programmer, not the program.
0: Yeah. So the the one of the beauty of Tron is that the pro the users. -hmm. Control programs that look the same as them. Oh, okay. So I've forgotten that detail. Yeah. So for for example, Tron is uh, Bruce Boxleitner's character. Mm -hmm. Is he Bruce Boxleitner plays the user and he plays Tron. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it's um, a brilliant movie. Just such a brilliant movie on so many levels. I mean, Mm -hmm. graphically, even actually to to now you know you look at it now it, it kind of stands up. You know, it's like wow, it looks great. A lot of mm. I think part of the reason for that is that the the very um the classic iconic you know glowing suits with the with the neon blue glow all over them mm-hmm. um, that was all actually painstakingly done frame by frame right, right where they take the frame and then actually mask out the lines and then they rear project light through it and then photograph that to re- reshoot every frame of uh the scenes inside the the computer system yeah. Uh, and so it has a very kind of glowing, warm, organic, analog look to it, mm. which uh, which helps it feel much more timeless. Yeah,
2: it is amazing when you think back to
0: to those sorts of
2: special effects and how physical they all were. You know, the, the frame by frame, obviously, just imagine like deciding this is how we're going to do it mm. and where it's how many frames a second they shot at. And we have this much, and so this is going to be this many thousands of images which we have to right. cut things out and paste up and and even the the crawl at the beginning of Star Wars, like there's a video somewhere of them recording that crawl, and it's mm. like words written on a piece of paper with a camera like panning down <laughs> right 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 S- some you know seems strange now, but...
0: right yeah, I think the the other wonderful thing about Tron is is the way that they've done it quite seamlessly between the, the live action stuff with the people mm. and the parts that are generated by computer. Mm. It's clearly it's clearly different. Like you can tell that, oh, this... You can see that visually these two things are different. That's generated entirely by a computer. These are mm-hmm. actors in front of a, a green or in those days a blue screen. Mm. But somehow it, it just works so well. Uh, and, mm. yeah, you know, I always... Uh, yeah, this is by far... My favourite movie of all time. hope we haven't talked about Tron before. I think maybe we have. I think we might have, yeah. But Mm. that's all right. Oh, well. (laughs) So I wanted to actually fill you in on a software purchase that I've made recently. Oh, yeah? I uh, have bought Steinberg's Cubase. Ah, Natsukashi. Yes, the classic (laughs) DAW software. Mm. And um, uh, I bought it because I've been there's been uh, so my my usual daw for making music is a tracker program called renoise which we've mm-hmm. talked many times about and renoise has got this unfortunate problem where the developer has the arguably very righteous attitude mm-hmm. that if my program is not broken why should i have to constantly update it to show that it is active mm-hmm. if it works and the functionality is there mm-hmm. and there are no sort of you know there's extra things that they could add on to it mm-hmm. but there's no sort of screaming deficiencies of the program that need attention right you know it it's reached a point where it is very mature mm-hmm. and there are things that he, they do need to take care of and one of the one thing one of the main things which is becoming a problem for many users of renoise these days is uh High uh, HD displays. Yes,
2: that is a bit frustrating.
0: Yeah, so Renoise uses um, bitmap graphics, and so uh, they don't scale very well to um, high-definition displays. And so that's something that they have to see to. Mm -hmm. But other than that, from a functional point of view, it's very complete. Mm -hmm. And their attitude is that, you know, if you want us just to be adding features so that it looks like our software is active and current... Mm -hmm that's pretty much the pathway of bloat. Right. Uh, and you, you it's just going to slow the program down. It's going to make it more complicated for new users to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just going to add more complexity where it's just not really necessary. Right. The other side of that argument uh, is that as somebody looking around uh, at this piece of software and considering a purchase, mm-hmm. it is reassuring to know that you are – putting your money into something that is going to get you value in the software but also the idea that you know you can create all of your music in the software uh, and you'll have all of these renoise.xrns files Mm -hmm. uh, stored and you're supporting a company who's going to maintain the software so that into the future you'll always be able to load them and they'll always work and you'll always have access to it and that basically i think we've come to the A general kind of understanding these days amongst users that uh, if software is active, Mm -hmm. it feels like a it it feels reassuring somehow and safer somehow if you know that the developers are are there and they're fixing things and they're always attentive to it. That
2: is, yeah, that is a a sort of impression that people have. I think you've accurately summarised two sort of opposing viewpoints on this idea, and I think they both have merit are an interesting topic of discussion in their own right, but carry on.
0: Mm. Yeah, actually, let's come back to that point because I'm curious about your take on, you know, features bloat mm-hmm. versus stability and, mm. you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Anyway, mm-hmm. coming back to Steinberg Cubase, it's really good.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I sound, I actually surprised, uh, I was really surprised at how good it is mm-hmm. because somehow... You know, um, just as a little bit of history, uh, the very, very first DAW that looked like what DAWs looked like these days, mm-hmm. which is basically a horizontally scrolling, kind of like a a visual tape reel, essentially, where it's horizontally scrolling and you've got these blocks there. And inside the blocks are audio events or MIDI events that trigger sounds. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a timeline that just scrolls across like that. Mm-hmm. The very first DAW that did that um, to wide commercial success was Steinberg Cubase on right. the Atari ST. Indeed. The Atari ST uh, was kind of a standard in the early days for a DAW machine simply because it came with a built-in MIDI port, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the two big titles at the time for uh, professional um, well, three, I suppose. I think Pro Tools came a little bit later, but mm-hmm. um, there was uh, eMagic's Notator mm. and Steinberg Cubase. And Notator was much more abstract mm. and, and much more, um, yeah, just a, a very abstract depiction of what's going on. And eMagic Notator eventually became eMagic Notator Logic. Mm-hmm. And then it became eMagic Logic, I believe, for a while, and then uh, it was purchased by Apple, and now it is Apple Logic. And Cubase uh, was the was the first widely used DAW that featured this sort of visual approach as opposed to an abstract approach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, of course, in those days, uh, Steinberg Cubase doesn't need to be that complicated because it's only dealing with MIDI. Mm and you know midi is basically you have a a note on a note off you've got program changes control changes you've got Mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of other stuff and then you've got editing tools for handling shifting around your notes you've got note velocity modulation pitch bend stuff like that it's it's complicated but it can be made fairly simple and steinberg cubase did it very well
1: Mm.
0: fast forward to now though and these daws are immensely complicated <laughs>
1: mm.
0: and the things that they have to do and the things that people use them for uh, has sort of uh, expanded hugely compared to how it was back in those days in the in the, uh, late 80s and the 90s. Mm. So that said it's amazing that uh, Cubase now is just so easy to use. It's fantastic. Like it's really mm. there are so many little bits, little sort of things here and there that you think oh that's clever mm. oh, you know that's that's a good idea and you really feel that, yeah, yeah, you know, the people who made this software, this software, they, they kind of know what they're doing. <laughs> mm. And I'm surprised, I was surprised because somehow, you know, there's this, this idea, I'm not sure if other people share it, but this idea that I have that these sort of long running legacy software titles that have been going for so long mm. – the other, the elephant in the room, of course, is Adobe Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator. Mm-hmm. Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator went down this pathway where, you know, several years ago, I've been using Illustrator since version eight, which is a long time ago, mm. uh, and they went through this path where Illustrator, the functionality, just got so complicated, and by around I don't know um, Creative Suite version. One or two mm. it's just this massive, bulky thing that 's hard to use, and everything 's buried in sub menus and sub menus of menus and like all these little buttons that pull out extra menus and dialogues and it 's just this it's it 's just hard and mm. often in those days, when I was using Illustrator, I can use it quite comfortably because i 'm used to it, and i 've been sort of following its growth mm-hmm. so I sort of know where everything is but I often found myself thinking. Gee, I really pity anybody who has to sort of come into using Illustrator at this point, (laughs) when it's so complicated. To their credit, uh, over the past five years, I suppose, Mm -hmm. with the uh, uprising, the not uprising, the um, increase in significance and attention given to user experience design, Mm -hmm. Adobe has done a great job in taking a lot of this functionality and finding very clever ways to uh, put that into the, the the system. Such that it appears very simple on the surface, and it's quite easy to get into. But all the functionality is there for people like me who who uh, have you know um, come to rely on it after all of these years. Right. So it's been great to see that um, Cubase uh, is in a similar situation. I mean, I don't know whether maybe ten years ago, perhaps Cubase was very very complicated to use, but now uh, it's just fantastic. And yeah, I've I've really uh, really been enjoying. Uh, and it's kind of like this feeling of uh, sasuga. <laughs> sasuga, which is a very useful Japanese phrase, which is very hard to translate into English. <laughs> but uh, I guess, what does it mean? I guess it means uh, trust, trust. Yeah, trust, trust Steinberg. Trust Steinberg to get it right because they've been doing it for so long, so they surely know what they do And his proof. Right. <laughs> In three syllables.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, Steinberg, I mean, of course... Uh, Cubase has a long and rich history
0: because I think they also introduced the VST, right? That's correct. So they uh they are the uh, original so inventors of the virtual synthesizer technology. I guess is what VST stands for? Probably. Basically software software emulations of hardware outboard gear like synthesizers mm. and effects units.
2: Yeah. So the, you know, the piano roll and VSTs There's two concepts to have under their belts. It's it's quite an an impressive history, I I think. Mm. It was actually the first DAW that I ever bought was Cubase. Mm. Cubase 5, maybe? Okay. This would have been about 2002, 2003. Right. And because it's the first that I ever used, Mm. I don't really have anything much else to compare it against, so I I don't really know if it's more or less complicated. I mean, you know, it seemed quite complicated to me at the time, but I mm. think anything would have, right? Because I was learning what a DAW is at the same time.
0: I thought that you used FL uh, Fruity Loops before. I yeah. used Fruity
2: Loops. I'm not counting that as a DAW. Ah. Um, FL Studio, I haven't used, but I've seen bits of and i think maybe that sort of counts but i think i'm not sure if i'd put renoise in daw i feel like you've got to be able to do both sequencing and uh you know editing and mixing of recorded audio to count that's, that's mm. at least part of where i'm drawing the line right mm. and uh, certainly fruity loops when i used to use it was only sequencing. It was the if you wanted to insert like some recorded audio, you had to record it in something else, assign that like five minute WAV file or whatever to an instrument, mm. and then set up a track that that plays that in like middle C right at the beginning, and then and then it would go right, right. Um, and then you <laughs> it I mean, it was just working based on MIDI, I think, so it had to be triggered by that on like for, by playing it so you couldn't start playing halfway through the track and expect your audio to be playing like if you <laughs> right if you wanted to listen to how your audio lined up with the rest of the song you needed to go back to the point at which that audio is triggered oh i see and play from there <laughs> right which is annoying so i i mean i didn't do much in the way of live recording anyway so i would record little snippets and place them where they needed to be but
0: hmm. uh, is Renoise similar yeah so um I think uh, there isn't really much argument, at least amongst music production people, that Renoise mm-hmm. is very much considered a DAW, as is FL Studio. Mm. What is a DAW? It was digital audio workstation. Mm. And so, you know, if it's handling digital audio, and you use it to make music, then it's a DAW essentially. So GarageBand is a DAW, mm. uh, even though it is it appears very very you know simple. Um, oh, but it still
2: meets my spec, right? Because it can deal with both recorded and sequenced audio.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's exactly the same with Renoise too. It does both as well. And right. the situation that you described, FL Studio now, of course, has a support for audio directly right there in your...
2: Uh, right, I thought it did. Yeah, you um, could have like a track that is an audio track. Right? Yeah,
0: and that's the same with Renoise. It's a little bit different in Renoise in that you load a sample which is the the sample is the recorded audio that you want to play, you do still Mm -hmm. need to put a trigger for the start of that somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, Renoise features uh, something called MIDI Chase, which is uh, something which most DAWs have these days, and that is that you can set something to... In Renoise, it's called Auto Seek, but it's the same thing. Mm. Basically, uh, if you have a long sample that started at the beginning of your track, but you start playback in the middle of it, Mm. Normally, like in the old days, like you mentioned, if it's a MIDI thing, MIDI is basically note on followed by note off. Mm-hmm. So if you trigger in the middle, it means that it doesn't actually see the note on event, which means you won't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the auto-seek or MIDI chase just means that if you start in the middle, it'll actually search back to uh, through each channel to see if something should be playing at that point, mm. figure out how at what duration it should be starting from from the place that you want to play from, and then play it from there so you actually right. hear things as it should be. So, um, yes, it's uh, most definitely a, considered a DAW as is mm. FL Studio. But, um, yeah, interesting that you mentioned FL Studio and Fruity Loops because that is an example of this kind of old legacy software platform that personally I don't feel has kind of uh, aged as well as it appears that Steinberg Cubase has. Hmm. Just that the the current version of FL Studio is fantastic. It's really great. Oh. <laughs> uh, it is really good. It's great fun to use. Mm. I mean, it's ex- incredibly inspiring. It, it feels like you're playing a game, really. Right. Um, the interf- the interface is, is brilliant. That's
2: kind it? of similar to how I remember it feeling like in the early 2000s, sort of yeah. like 90s.
0: It just it just feels like a wonderful place to be to be making music. You know, there's lots mm-hmm. of little animations here and there, and and it looks uh, it has a very distinctive. I think distinctive they've actually look.
2: got a Mac version coming
0: out, or maybe out now. So I might have to have a go. It's been out for quite some time now. The Mac version, oh really? Yeah, and I think if you if you own a copy of FL Studio, then you actually have uh, upgrade because they have um, a great policy of lifetime upgrades. Oh. Where you, you only buy once, and then you never have to. Well, pay for an upgrade again. That, but anyway. that would apply if uh, my 15 year old self was the moral upstanding citizen that I, that I am now. So <laughs> we'll, we'll just leave that right there. But um, uh, yeah, if it's it's a fantastic it's a fantastic program. the 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 way the reason I say that I don't feel it as aged as well as mm-hmm. uh, Cubase has is because it's really complicated. Mm. And th- there are many things about it that just when you're using it, you, you find yourself thinking, yeah, okay, I'm sure I would understand this immediately if I had 10 years of pedigree with this program. Mm. But looking at it now, that's really an odd way to do things.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> you know. And it just sort of feels that the, the, the learning curve, not so much how to use it from a conceptual point of view, because FL Studio is a little bit different in that you um, – You basically, uh, it's much more free, but you you have the, you you can create patterns Mm. and the pattern can contain any amount of of, uh, musical information for any amount of instruments can be one pattern Mm -hmm. or you can just have one instrument playing one pattern and then you sequence Mm. the patterns together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it can be used traditionally.
2: It's all coming back to me now.
0: Yeah, it can be used in a traditional way uh, in that you just have... Every pattern has just like, oh, this is just a bass line and this is just Mm -hmm. a lead part and then you put the patterns all together or you can actually use it like a tracker style where you have all of your musical data for one section of your song as one pattern. Right, Uh, that's how I used to use it, I think. Right, and then you just sort of... You just drop in a single row of patterns uh, to sequence chunks of your song. So it can be... uh, uh, that aspect of it is not hard to to learn, and arguably mm-hmm. it's incredibly flexible and very fun and inspiring. Mm-hmm. The bit that is hard to learn is just the the complexity of all of its functionality, and yeah, you really just get the sense that wow well, there's decades of features that have just been sort of piling on to mm-hmm. <laughs> to to this program, making it uh just feel like yeah you could you could get used to it, and you can see that f l studio image line have done their very best to kind of ease that uh, learning curve and ease that entry into it. Mm-hmm. But Cubase, I've found everything just sort of works as you would expect it would and functionality is is kind of cleverly hidden from the user in many key places so that mm-hmm. you, know, you can just sort of get into it straight away and you can see what's going on and um, a lot of sort of convenience features are there. But um, in many cases, you know, uh, the more complicated, advanced f- uh, functionality is slightly below the surface a bit, where new users aren't likely to sort of really dig, um, which makes it feel quick and easy and simple, but also functional at the same time. Mm. Whereas FL Studio, much of it is much closer to the surface, and you can sort of feel that there is a there is a legacy here um to the way that this software functions mm-hmm. but the legacy is not uh not sort of disguised in any way it's like right there mm. this is the FL Studio way of doing things and this is how this is all the functionality that you have so interesting good luck yeah with
2: it. <laughs> well yeah that's sort of interesting because i remember i mean part of the joy and the fun of FL Studio always was that it was so easy to get into right Right. So, yeah, if they've kind of lost that, then then that's a shame. Mm. I've actually downloaded the demo. And I have, funnily enough, I was uh, browsing through. So, as a little project for myself recently, uh, just a couple of Sundays ago. This is a little project. I literally spent three hours on this. So, it's a very small project. Mm. Uh, I decided to remake a game that I made in university. Oh, Using Unity. Is it uh, strong car strong car racing? It's not not the classic strong car racing, uh, but the other absolute classic with a name with a name that had me giggling until four in the morning. I literally could not sleep for giggling. It's it's a game called Magna Carta, right? Which is spelt Magna M A G N A Carta K A R T <laughs> E R, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a uh it was a game that that i and two other people so three of us in total did for a 72 hour game development competition right so we it started on the friday and we stayed up late on friday and saturday night and we you know we spent 72 hours made this game and uh the theme was magnets. Mm. So we had to do... That was all we were given. So we had to do some sort of game based on magnets. Uh, and there's another game... The name unfortunately escapes me now, but I'll see if I can remember it and put it in the show notes. Uh, there was a game that I used to play on DOS, back in the DOS days, mm. um, which was a sort of almost like a puzzle game made to look like a racer, but you're you were flying this spaceship and you had a certain amount of fuel and a certain amount of air. And you had to get to the end of the track uh, without hitting any obstacles Mm. and without running out of air, which just went down steadily over time, or running out of fuel, which went down quicker if you went faster. Mm. So you had to sort of balance speed with uh, the amount of air you had and with trying to avoid these obstacles. It had this very distinctive sort of 3D perspective view. Everything was just moving forward. There There were no turns but it was a very simple style so we we sort of played off that idea and we had a game with this sort of spaceship going straight forward but we added to it the notion of these magnetic tiles and so your spaceship had polarity either positive or negative it was either positively or neg- negatively charged and then some of the tiles were also either positively or negatively charged and if they were positive if they if you were the same charge as the tile then you'd be repelled, and so you would float up above the tile. Hmm. And if you were the opposite charge, then you would be attracted to the tile, and so you would lose your jump functionality. And so you were trying to get through this course and be the right polarity so that you could jump when you needed to jump to avoid an obstacle and stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, Anyway, so I remade this game. It took three of us 72 hours the first time we did it, Uh, it took me three hours (laughs) to knock together in Unity one Sunday afternoon. Right. Which may be partly down to the sort of over 10 years experience I have in making games since then, but more, I think, to do with how easy Unity makes things. Right, right. So anyway, that was a fun little experiment. And uh, I have all the original source files from the first time we did it. Uh, So I was looking at those for reference, partly to dig out some of the old artwork that we used so i didn't have to bother making that Mm. and uh, partly to remind myself how the game worked and in there was the original music Mm. in flp format oh wow wow and so i was thinking oh i'm gonna have to install fruity loops at some point to to dig this out right so now i've installed it so i'm gonna have to look up that flp later and and have a look excellent <laughs>
0: excellent yeah you'll you'll enjoy it i mean like i said it is very complica- complicated and you do get the sense that it, the the legacy is there for you to try and figure out not for them to simplify for your benefit mm-hmm. however uh, it's it's excellent and it's great fun and uh, highly highly capable mm-hmm. and i think that you know um, propeller heads reason is another one which um, is uh, also has a sort of a long legacy I think all all long-running software seems to run into this situation where you have a certain degree of functionality. Mm. And just by part of being a commercial business, taking feedback from users, users using your programming, coming up with requests for more advanced functionality, just as software kind of ages, mm. in most cases, maybe it is a natural process for sort of functionality to grow and that to bring with it complexity and I guess if it's not handled very carefully you you get bloatware where where it just becomes so weighed down in its own functionality that it's mm. really hard to use for anybody who is just approaching it now and doesn't have all the years of experience with it or if you're very very careful with it you know I guess um then you know you're able to maintain that uh core of what it is that makes the software interesting and useful to use whilst you know satisfying your uh user base with new features or you just do the renoise way and just say no nah, it's done <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect it's done you know what do you want yeah. you want you want useless features just so that you feel that the software is being maintained well you know it's being maintained but that's a
2: different thing
0: like i i am sympathetic to the
2: viewpoint that updating things just for the sake of updating them is not good. Mm. And that as a user, it is a bad habit that we've got into that. And I do this as well. Like when I'm looking on the app store and deciding whether I'm going to download an app or not, I'll look Mm. when the most recent, you know, if I'm deciding between two different apps and one of them seems to be updated fairly regularly. And the other one hasn't been updated in two years. I'll probably choose the one that that is updated regularly. Right. 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 Uh, I'm sympathetic to the notion that sometimes that is, not uh, not fair and not a correct conclusion to come to but there are features that are worth having and adding them is fundamentally an additive process right Mm. including the verb but you know it is hard to add something without increasing complexity there's kind of a you know the entropy of a system never decreases rule going on there hmm. uh it takes a great amount of care and sometimes there's no other way to do it than to rethink your original hmm. concept right so some you know if you really want to and i expect this is what steinberg have done in in some sense is probably at some point along the way occasionally they've revisited the the fundamental ui and you're talking mostly about ui like there's this thing also happens at the software level in terms of the way the software is actually constructed hmm. but it's kind of a different problem there uh, similar and the solutions i think are similar as well but it's less visible to the user but they i i expect that in order to maintain that Simplicity and to have that sense of progressive disclosure where they just show you what you need to know first, and then you only run into sort of understanding how the next feature works at the point where you need to use that feature.
1: Mm.
2: In order to achieve that, they need to know when they're designing the system what all the features are. And if the system is just built up over time and had features added to it over time, You know, by definition, they didn't know what those were going to be when they started the the first thing. Right. In the case of Renoise, it may be that they have all the features that they feel that they need and they don't want to add any more. But I'm looking at this copy of FL Studio that I've just installed now and Renoise would look a lot nicer if it supported retina resolutions. (laughs) Like... This this is very pretty to look yeah. at. And it's a similar sort of idea to Renoise, right? Where it's like a full screen thing that doesn't follow the UI conventions of whatever platform, but it just puts you in this sort of very technical, music-y world with sort of knobs and, and things. Um, and it creates its own sort of world of widgets. Right. But FL Studio have managed to update that from the version that I used back in the late 90s which was much lower resolution to a version that looks right and is very clean and has very crisp nice lines mm. and it looks great and you know renoise would benefit a lot from from that alone so with my limited knowledge of renoise i can at least name one feature Uh, that they could do with adding now i'm sure they're aware of it and i know it's very difficult and it's not just a programming problem because they've got to redraw all their assets probably but Mm. nevertheless that is it is not the case that it is finished and perfect Mm. i don't think and these things happen right new technology comes in which enables new features Mm. and if you choose not to take advantage of them that's fine mm. but i think you do run the risk of stagnating a little bit
0: yeah and that's the the in, in my position because you know if i'm making music and producing all of these renoise files mm. and there isn't a sense that i'm going to be able to rely on this program being there in 5 or 10 years time mm. when the operating system has moved on the display system may have moved on and you know the the program needs updating but there's nobody there to do it anymore right or they've just given up on the project
2: like is that their view that's that's the question it is one thing to say we don't want to add unnecessary features to make our software bloated but if that's your stance you should still be doing basic maintenance right like Right, new operating systems come out, new security flaws are discovered. Mm. And that seems like the the minimum that you have to do to say that your work is being maintained. Mm. And, you know, I'm not saying that if you release a piece of software, you're committed to maintaining it for life. It is a valid choice to choose to stop maintaining software. Mm. But then I think it's it's dishonest not to make it clear that that is the state of that software, right? Right. I do think there's a there's a, a fundamental difference between software that is completely unmaintained and abandoned, mm. which I agree, I would feel a little bit worried about, you know, paying for. With software that is maintained and you can feel confident will be kept up to date when, you know, new operating systems require it to be updated in order to make it compatible, for example. Mm. But that they're taking a very conservative approach to
0: adding new features Mm. yeah the the tricky part with renoise is that they are famously poor at communicating with their community Mm. so nobody really knows (laughs) Mm. you know what what they're thinking and when i say they it is actually he it's actually one person Mm -hmm. who works with uh, there used to be several but it's it's basically one person who's the original creator Mm. um it's a guy in berlin and he has sort of maybe three or four people that uh, help in various ways with the program, helping with the sort of video tutorials and maintaining the website and uh, stuff like that. Mm. But the actual development is all down to one person. And, he, yeah, he's, he's famously in commun- non-communicative. Right. And people, you know, the, the users on the forum, on the Renoise forum, hate it because everybody th- is calling it abandonware, and, you know, the last update was like two years ago or something. And right. if you look at the people have sort of been plotting out the amount of time in between each renoise update, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of pointing out that, you know, this, this can't be ethical that we, that they're charging money for a program, which is two years old has clear flaws in the sense that, or clear flaws for anybody who's using uh, a system with an HD display mm-hmm. and, uh, You know, the the last communication that came from the developer was, you know, that functionally, from a functional point of view, it's very mature, and you pay for Renoise and you get the value of what it is right now. And if you, you know, that the demo works and is very generous, Mm -hmm. and if you don't, Mm -hmm. if you evaluate it and you think that, Mm -hmm. yep, this is this is going to be good for my needs, then that's the reason you buy it for what it is exactly. Yeah. So I mean, I
2: agree with that. I think I think it's too strong to say that it is not ethical to continue to sell it without committing to updating it. And yeah. Renoise in particular does have a very good, very generous demo version available for it. So it is quite possible to evaluate it and mm. decide for yourself whether it is worth spending the $50 or whatever it costs yeah. right now. Yeah. But, you know, I think the you know the the equation changes over time right mm. more and more people will look at how kind of it, it kind of looks a bit rough now on high resolution displays and they're going to look at that and say i think i'll give it a miss
0: mm that's the thing yeah and he he has said uh before uh that you buy the software for what it is today mm-hmm. not what you hope it will be in 6 months right. time right
2: which is a very sensible uh approach mm. i think
1: yeah. So anyway, I mean, it's not
2: a subscription, right? If,
1: no. You, you know, it's
2: we're back onto the sort of between purchases and subscriptions. But mm. I think it does. It 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 does makes. I, I I sort of come down on his side. But the longer he does it, the more of an opening there is for you know he he can afford to do this partly because he kind of has a monopoly on modern tracker programs, right? Because Because nobody else is really making a a fully-featured tracker-based DAW. Right, or
0: there there are one or Um, two others, but they don't have the... They're not in the same... Because Renoise is is a functional DAW, and it can do amazing things on par with the other larger DAW uh, names. Um, There's nobody who's making a tracker program on that scale. Right.
2: Um, Somebody could, like... Renoise itself is made by one person, so it's evidence that one committed person can create software of that quality. Mm. And I kind of hope somebody does, Mm. because I think a little bit of competition would solve this problem. Mm. Unfortunately, it happens that tracker-based DAWs do not have a very large market. The majority of people no. would rather work with a piano roll-based right. DAW
1: now. Right.
2: Uh, and so there's less of an impetus for people to put the significant amount of effort that it would take to to make something of that quality that is tracker-based. But right. if somebody did, then there would be a little more of, of an impetus to try and at least meet the, the basics of mm. And then, and then you get into the thing of, like, then the way that they compete, usually, is by adding new features. Mm. And that's when you start to get into a race of, like, well, how can I add one more feature than the other guy mm. so that people will buy mine instead? And that's, right. that's what leads to the thing, the bad thing that the, the person who made Renoise is trying to avoid, right, of bloatware.
0: Right, yeah. I think there's many many cases where he could be doing things differently uh, and be more successful mm-hmm. and I think um you know the reason that you would choose a tracker program you would most people would choose it for specific reasons mm-hmm. whether 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 it be it's what they 're used to or it's it, it's fun or from a from a functional point of view it's easier to achieve the kind of music that they want to do in a tracker mm-hmm. program just because the paradigm is so different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could argue that, well, number one, he could potentially charge a whole lot more for it because mm-hmm. the users are likely to be people like me who gravitate towards it for those kinds of odd reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're the ones who are going to buy it anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we're not just going to... Um, we'll get to the point, oh, wow, great, it's a tracker DAW. It's really functional, just what I need. It costs this much. Well... It's just what I need, so I'm going to get it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, if it was a sort of a price war situation with lots of other competitors on the market and a workflow and func- set of functionality that was not so esoteric, mm. then um, uh, you know, having a cheaper price would obviously be more advantageous. Mm. The other thing that he could do is have a subscription, because I think most of the people who still use Renoise, despite it being several years out of without an update, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, being very uncomfortable to use on an HD display, most of the people are so dedicated that they're still using it today and complaining that it's not being updated. Right. So probably, and you see it, I see it a lot on the forums where people are saying, just give us some information, you know, just let us know what the plans are because mm. I would gladly pay a subscription or I'd gladly pay more for this if it meant that Th- this could appear more healthy, you know, the software.
2: What are the other, are there other issues other than the resolution problem? Are there other problems that are waiting to be resolved or are there features that, that, have, you know, other software has that people feel like is a disadvantage to them not being able to
0: use in Renoise? No, none. None. So it's, <laughs> it's just that people feel uneasy. I mean, it's this hmm. like, cause uh, I think that a lot of people want a piano role in Renoise, which is ridiculous because hmm. it is a, it is a tracker DAW and that's not really where piano rolls belong. Right. A lot of people, a lot of people want sort of visualization of waveforms in the tracker display.
2: Right. That makes a little bit more sense to me. It's a bit weird because it's vertical rather than horizontal, but that's one of the things that I like that. That's, that's one of the things that makes me feel like, uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, that, uh, I I you mean know, maybe my definition isn't isn't the the widely accepted definition of what a DAW is but I feel like you ought to be able to manipulate audio not just triggering audio that you've manipulated in other programs but
0: be able to sort of cut it and splice it and move it about mm. so that all of that functionality Renoise actually has mm-hmm. uh, the thing is is that it's not you're doing it by typing numbers in hex and right. so that's the bit where people sort of think I mean, the people like me who are used to that find it actually much more, it feels much more direct and much more like you're actually on the sound. Mm -hmm. At this sample, you're going to enter in, you know, like you'll enter in like I6A or something Mm -hmm. and you'll know that that's going to do this specific thing at that moment in the sound. Right. Uh, It feels much more kind of direct than taking a mouse and dragging some Bezier curve on top of a picture of a waveform. Mm-hmm. But the, the waveform display thing is another thing that people ask for. But that I agree with their decision that that's ridiculous because this is a tracker program. And also, if you want to see that, um, if you look at the, the sampler view which shows the sample that's being played mm-hmm. they included a feature which allows you to detach the sample view into its own window mm. which means that if you have dual monitors you can keep your sample view on the other window and then you can see exactly at what point the sample is on any one of your lines mm. in the in the tracker display so anyway mm. the, the answer to your question is not really no there is no functionality that is lacking um, the only thing is the support for HD display, which is quite crippling for people who are on, you know, uh, very high-resolution displays. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, you um, must let me know how you get on with FL Studio because it's great and um, is complicated, <laughs> but it is great. Interestingly, ImageLine, the company that makes FL Studio, has mm. made a fantastic business for themselves and they've, they've done really, really well. with. And, again, their policy is that, you know, you buy once, and then you have updates free forever. Mm-hmm. Which arguably you could say, well, that's kind of risky, <laughs> from <laughs> from because you basically, if you do that, you basically have to guarantee that there's always going to be new people, new users. Yeah, you know, and um, but they've done it, and uh, apparently, um, actually, ImageLine has no debt, mm. so they have made a very successful business out of that uh, very generous upgrade policy, mm. and they are highly in tune with their community, unlike Renoise. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. See what I did there? Um, marching to the same beat, you know? Um yeah. Yes anyway, um and so <laughs> for what yeah, for whatever reason uh that they've done an excellent job in taking their business model and uh, making it successful, and the result is clear i mean f l Studios is, is excellent, it's just mm. like I said that you know when you use it pretty quickly, you kind of realize, yeah, I would understand exactly what that does if I had ten years of experience with this <laughs>
2: <laughs> interesting, well, yeah, I'll probably have a bit of a play. I've been sort of toying on and off for ages now with getting back into music Mm. stuff and I am very attracted to Renoise like I've tried a few times to to get into Renoise as the way to do it I don't have the same background as you do with trackers of course so Mm. I have a similar situation where I've got to learn that whole way of thinking about things from scratch Mm. and I still feel like I would like to like mm. partly because not having done it feels like giving up giving up but uh partly because I do feel like you know it would appeal if I got it under my fingers in the same way that you have it under yours the idea that with the keyboard you can very quickly make these you know broad edits mm. it feels very appealing in the same way that like vim is quite appealing that the way that I edit text in in vim is much more semantic mm. and much much quicker than I could do if I was just doing it visually using the mouse or the cursor keys. Mm. So you know that side of it appeals. So every time I think about getting back into music, I try and do it in Renoise, and for whatever reason, I've never got very far with it. So mm. maybe I should have a, a play with Fruity Loops and just forget about trying to do the the sort of cool thing that I want to do. And just enjoy myself for a bit and see how it goes.
0: Mm. Well, you'll have a great time because, like I said, um, FL Studio is just really fun. If you dig around in the plugins that come with FL Studio, you'll find some interesting, fun stuff in there. Yeah,
2: I mean, there always, even back in the day, there there was a lot. There were a lot of interesting plugins, and there was a lot of fun. I mean, it was so easy to
0: to get into. Mm. And the thing that I did like three albums with it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thing, the thing with FL Studio, of course, is that um, uh, in order to modernize, like Cubase and like all of this that we've been talking about, mm. there's a lot of new functionality there. Right. Right? And some of the way that the new functionality is implemented is very logical from the point of view of the FL Studio paradigm. Mm. But for somebody who's coming to it from the outside uh, is a little challenging to sort of get into immediately. Right. But yeah, for somebody like yourself who has, who's seen where it was many, many, many years ago, you'll probably just, (laughs) you'll be, you'll be, uh, you'll be right at home.
2: Very good.
1: Okay. Well, I'll look forward to it.